This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. Hello again. I am Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front. And today's guest is with a very unique organization that I would like to have him introduce a bit about that organization before we even start talking about this senior vice president of survey computing and statistical science at Research Triangle Institute, otherwise known as RTI International. Welcome today, Dr. Craig Hill. Good morning, Craig. Hello, Gary. How are you? I am terrific. Hey, listen, talk to me a little bit about RTI and their mission, because it fascinates me. Sure. RTI's mission is to improve the human condition by turning knowledge into practice. And as a practical matter, what that means is that we do basic and applied science, mainly under contract to the federal government, but also receiving grants from the government and foundations and so forth, um, implementing science-based, evidence-based work to help improve the human condition. And so that means that we do work uh, across the scientific disciplines, everything from, for example, turning waterborne biomass into methane to new drug discovery and drug development to reducing the incidence and prevalence of a malaria across the world to collecting data and doing analysis about mental health and substance abuse. Um, it is a wide variety of science that we do all in support of improving the human condition. That's what we're all about. I just I love that motto, improving the human condition. I mean, that can be so broad, but at the same time, it's not hard to look at the work that you do and say, yep, that fits <laughs> or yeah. no, that doesn't fit, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's quite a it's quite a fulfilling mission. It makes it a really good place to work, a dynamic place, a lot of very bright people here. Um, it's a place where I actually learn something new every day, which is fascinating to me and makes it a wonderful place to be. And, you know, we've been around since 1958. Wow. RTI was actually the first entity in the Research Triangle Park, which was created as a way to help stem the brain drain from the three universities, UNC at Chapel Hill, NC State, and Duke. Those form the triangle, of course. We're right smack dab in the middle. And um, RTI was created to augment the research capacity of those three universities. Well, that, that's a great history. And uh, in your present position as a senior vice president, as if I remember correctly, you've got about 1,700 people reporting to you. But the question is, how do you, on a daily basis, 
with your leadership team apply that mission to, de- to making decisions? We have a formal process for deciding what kind of work we're going to do and whether or not we're going to bid on a particular request for a proposal. I'm speaking here mainly about the federal government because that's mostly where dollars come from. And, you know, most of what the federal government does certainly can be interpreted as trying to improve the human condition. So um, a lot of the work that we do is to produce official statistics for the federal government, for example, or to do conduct surveillance about particular diseases um, or estimate the efficacy of a program that's been implemented to try to stem disease. So all of those things, of course, um, work in our mind to improve the human condition. Yeah, so let's let's go back to the beginning because uh, I, I don't know you as Dr. Hill. I know you as Craig, <laughs> but uh, you've published a lot of papers. Uh, I was looking at your topics of research, social sciences, hospital ranking methodology, interviewer fraud, uh, new technology for social science research, social media. That's just a that's a wide variety of stuff, Craig. Yeah, I, I'd like to hear how did you get from graduating high school and college to going on and getting a a master's and a PhD and getting to RTI. Can you talk a little bit about your background? Sure, I can. I actually started my college career as a theater major, which may come as a little bit of a surprise given where I ended up. But midway through college, I took a turn, let's say, and ended up uh, on the political science side of um, Endeavor and ended up getting both a master's degree in international relations and then a PhD in quantitative methods and social sciences from the political science department at the University of New Orleans, um, which brings to uh, mind a whole lot of other stories I could tell, but Mm. um, University of New Orleans was a great place to be. I ended up going from there to uh, Ohio State, started my working career at Ohio State University and then moved to University of Chicago. And then in the late 90s came to RTI, the Research Triangle Institute, now doing business as RTI International. So did you start there as a researcher with RTI? Yes. Started as a scientist, essentially building models to help explain human behavior or social science behavior in general. And so if I'm uh, famous at all in the scholarly literature, and I use that term advisedly because (laughs) being famous in the scholarly literature means like 50 people have read what you wrote. I understand that. My dissertation, I've always said that uh, six people read it and five of them were on my committee. (laughs) That's probably about right. That's probably about right. Well, in the late 80s, early 90s, I built a model that was aimed at predicting the quality of care provided by hospitals across the United States. Mm. And this was specifically aimed at um, when people had a very critical or complex illness, where should they go for care? And so I built a model that relied on data from the American Hospital Association, from surveys of physicians, and from what's now the Center for Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, it used to be mm. called something back then, but combined all those data together and built a model that predicted where you were going to get the best quality of care if you had a, uh, a critical or complex illness. And so published some things about that. And then also that got taken up by U.S. News and World, World Report, which publishes every year uh, an issue devoted to uh, best hospitals in the United States. And they use my model. It's morphed quite a bit since then. 
but they use my model to as the backbone to do that analysis or make those predictions. So you're you're kind of uh, you know that's a good segue into leadership because you you created something new that brings to light uh, where people can get the best care, which also could create a little bit of uh, concern for those hospitals that weren't doing so well. As is typical in academia or in the research world, presented a lot of conferences and got a lot of, uh, let's say, feedback (laughs) about my methods. Resistance, uh, feedback, second guessing, Monday morning quarterbacking, all of those, right? Exactly right. Because I'm sure there were a lot of both researchers and academics who thought this couldn't or shouldn't be done. And then also... Yeah, a lot of hospitals or hospital corporations who didn't fare necessarily well wondered why, wanted to know why. And that, of course, led to criticism about the methodology, sometimes unwarranted, sometimes resulting in change. But, um, yeah, you do have to take a sort of leadership role in defending your own work (laughs) and in believing ultimately that it's going to do some good for some people. And in fact, it made some changes at some hospitals because, for example, one of the most powerful variables in the model that I built was the ratio of registered nurses to beds. Hmm. When some hospitals saw that, their reaction was, well, we should hire more registered nurses. And I mean registered nurses as opposed to LPNs or other Mm -hmm. um, types of nurses. And so that, I, I like to think that that actually helped change the healthcare landscape a little bit for some, in some particular institutions anyway. Yeah, so I want to go back to uh, what you said. We have an oxymoron of leadership that we talk about, which we say is a confident doubt mm. that you have to have confidence in what you do, but enough of your ego needs to be put aside to be able to hear and listen to everybody's opinion so that you can assess some of those opinions that you look at. For example, in this research that you go, you know, that that's a really good point. That might really improve the model that we presently have because all models are flawed, right? Exactly. All models are bad, but some are useful. So how does that relate to your development, looking back on that and and having your ego, having to step aside in some cases and say, because uh, you, you put your heart and soul into this, I can I can tell you're talking about it like it, it really meant a lot and it's made a big difference in healthcare. There had to be a point where you finally were able to put some of that ego aside and say, uh, you know, I understand what you're saying, and maybe there's something here that can actually make your research better. Do you remember when that happened? I'll say that the science of science is building on what's come before. So I think you have to be being trained as a scientist helps you realize that what you've done is improving on what was done before and is going to be improved on others. That's sort of what you buy into when you pursue a a career in science. And so that has to be, I think, your attitude that you can always do better and you have to be willing to accept help from others to improve your product, if you will. That's that's part of the way science is done, replication and uh, building on what's happened before. Yeah, the phrase I can remember my chair saying is adding to the body of knowledge. Yeah, exactly right. And I also can remember a quote from Einstein when somebody said to him, asked him a question one day about his theory of relativity. And they said, what if they find out that you're wrong? And, you know, to your point, Craig, his response to that was, I'm not interested in whether I'm right or wrong. I'm interested in the truth. 
Yep. And interested in building up knowledge block by block. Yes. It's, it usually are not these great revelations. It's over a long period of time. So how does that relate to leadership? One of the ways it relates to leadership is uh, being willing to have an open mind. As you said, uh, I mean, you have to be willing to listen to the opinions of others and take their input and realize that I hadn't heard that phrase confident doubt before, but I like that because um, I've always been pretty confident as an individual, but I have to be. And I've learned this over time and matured quite a bit in this way, I think, Gary, um, in being much more willing to accept um, the input of others and their thoughts and their perspectives, um, which makes your decisions much more robust and valuable in the long run. I think you really do have to be sort of a consumer of ideas. Yeah. So how does that play out for you today? You're a senior vice president in this very, you know, highly respected research organization, a lot of smart people around you. I'm going to guess that there's some egos that are involved at times. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. You got to have confidence, but we also have to be able to hear each other. So how do you, how do you manage and lead all these really smart people? Yeah. What are the challenges? I've got about 1700 people who report indirectly to me. And one of the things that I've come to realize is the importance of having a very strong team around you. So I've got five VPs who report to me and they are all very smart and very competent and very capable people who, of course, risen up through the organization on their own merits. But they are all different in terms of the technical skills they have, the demeanor they have, the perspectives they have, and being able to um, engage with them as a team and have that kind of input and hear all those perspectives and meld them together. To me, that's where the leadership comes in. And I also have realized, and again, this is one of those things that you come to as part of the maturing process, the maturation process, is that I now recognize what some of my weaknesses are, and I recognize that other people on my team have those things as strengths. I, for example, yes. do not follow up very well. I tend to think of myself as a you know, sort of vision-oriented, big-picture kind of person, and I don't follow up on the details very well or think very much about the implementation, but I have some people on my team who do and have a exhibited strength in that way, and so I rely on them. And I'm perfectly willing to say to them, hey, I don't do this very well. You know I don't, so please jump in, fill in, help me in that aspect, and they do. Yeah, so that's that's a really key thing, right? You you said a lot here in about three minutes about focusing on strengths, <laughs> understanding or recognizing, being aware of our own limitations. Uh, we try to call them limitations, not weaknesses, mm -hmm. uh, just because of vocabulary. But uh, weaknesses, limitate, call it what you want. We have them, sure. and being able to recognize that can, and then to be able to ask for help. You know, uh, for us uh, white males, sometimes we we don't even want to ask help when we walk into the target. You know, but it's it's so important in leadership to be able to recognize what you don't know, right? Yeah, exactly right. We, uh, as a management team, read a book um, not too long ago together as a team, a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Yep. Patrick Lencioni, you, you probably are well aware of it. It has a, uh, a sort of pyramid of behaviors that are necessary to have a good functioning, cohesive team. The base of that pyramid is vulnerability-based trust. 
And so I had to, I really sort of resonated with this and saying to my team in a, you know, open and vulnerable way that I recognize that this is a, not a strength of mine, that ability to follow up really helps sort of open things up for us as a management team. Just my start stating that openly and stating openly to some of my team, but I know you do have this as a strength, so let's work together and complement each other that way. That was a, it's been a really good way for us to function better together as a team. Yeah. So his book, The Advantage, is kind of the the mirror image of the five dysfunctions of a team, which give you the those that that pyramid that you're talking about, starting with trust based on competency and uh, vulnerability. The vulnerability part is something that we do a lot with in our leadership programs, and we are found to, to be a cornerstone of success because people have to open up and identify what part of them is human. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I mean, I was initially a little uncomfortable with that. I had, growing up as a leader, always felt that I needed to project strength and project confidence without exhibiting any doubt, Gary, as you were saying before. But um, going through this process with my team, I really did find it sort of freeing. Talk to me a little bit about how you brought out you know, without breaking any confidentiality, obviously, but how did you bring out the vulnerability of others beyond just being able to identify what we don't do well? This was really in a, in some group sessions, some off-campus retreats we had that were, um, where we sort of set the business aside and agreed with each other, made a commitment to each other beforehand that we were going to do some storytelling and some sharing and Mm. Um, really get to know each other better as people <laughs> outside of the business. And and I will say that we did that off campus and continued that into the evening at a bar. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, yeah. that really was helpful in terms of, as I say, sort of freeing people up to, to share openly. And so I guess the one of the lessons I learned from that is that, yeah, I mean, we're all business here from, um, you know, eight to five every day, but the importance of getting to know your colleagues better on a more personal level really, really is helpful. Yeah. So uh, you, you did the right thing by doing it offsite. I, I have to, we, we have a leadership program where we do a three and a half day boot camp, and each day we have what we call a circle of trust. Mm. And the, specifically, what we do is in the first day, everybody has to share an item of significance. We had a guy bring in a ring from his grandfather and talked about the relationship with his grandfather. And this guy recently brought a picture of his daughter, his five-year-old, and she's 25 now. And what the impact was on his life when he realized at five years old, his responsibility as a father and how it shifted the way he thought about things. So there's those moments of discovery and vulnerability People, like you said, I, I got to give you credit because there's some discomfort with that. But mm-hmm. as a leader, be able to say, you know, lean into that discomfort. That is probably that learning moment. So my favorite one and the second day is to talk about embarrassing moments huh. because huh. that's the one that ends up the later on at the bar. Everybody's sitting around. And somebody has told, you know, we've all shared an embarrassing moment. Some of them are funny. Some of them are like, oh, my gosh, that I can't believe that happened to you. And then at the bar that night, you go, whoa, whoa, I just thought of another one. And somebody shares another embarrassing moment. Right. And it starts to get this like life of its own 
where people are like, I'm, I'm not perfect and it's okay. Yeah, and, exactly right. And for everybody to be able to say that and for everybody to acknowledge that, um, and you know, people have varying levels of degrees of comfort with that, but, um, that kind of setting and that kind of, uh, sort of building on each other as you were describing Gary is, yeah, it's really important and it's eye opening and it's, uh, really does help build that foundation of trust. Yeah. And I, I do highly recommend Patrick's book, the five dysfunctions of a team or the advantage. And just so our listeners know at the bottom of that pyramid is trust. And then the second level is conflict and understand any, any well-developed team has respectful conflict after they have some trust and vulnerability and not before. And this is, it builds into commitment, accountability results. That's the pyramid that uh, we're trying to create on teams and organizations in order to be functional. You know, one interesting note about that is he refers to that second step as uh, healthy conflict, um, which only comes after you've achieved that trust with each other. But our team had a pretty lengthy discussion about that. And we settled on, referring to it as healthy debate, because we, as a team, didn't necessarily want to be in conflict with each other, but we wanted to be able to get to a place where, as a team, when there are thorny issues or difficult decisions to be made, that we could have a healthy, trust-based debate amongst each other about those issues. And I I guess I will add one one other thing, Gary, and that's because this conversation is about leadership. That's we're a team, but I'm the leader (laughs) and uh, that has to be, you know, sort of known and acknowledged. And it makes my role a little bit different as a team member. Absolutely. And that segues into the difference between leadership and being the leader. And my uh, my guess is you let everybody have their moment of leadership because when there's healthy debate and I'm going to say healthy, respectful debate. And I love the change of that word, by the way, I'm going to use that. Mm -hmm. Um, I like debate versus conflict. And here's the thing is, is if you have those healthy debates, there comes times quite often where decisions have to be made and the leader has to step up sometimes and make those decisions. But along the way, everybody can demonstrate a certain level of leadership. And that's why we say that leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Yes. So talk to me a little bit about the in the technical world that you're in, what are the challenges with all of these really smart people? I'm assuming that most of your people, the five vice presidents you report, have also come through some level of research because of the type of organization you're in. That's Maybe right. not. They, okay, they did. Uh, smart yeah. people. What's different, do you think, between leading and managing really smart, competent, technical people versus business people in in general. Is there a difference? Well, I'm not sure I can say that because I haven't been in the latter position because I've been in sort of academic or science-based organizations for all of my life. Although I will say that I came to RTI in the late 90s. I did leave RTI in 2000 for a short stint with a venture-funded startup, which you'd nowadays call a healthcare informatics firm, And um, that was a very different leadership challenge because um, that was a business, that was a profit-making enterprise, and that was a very flat and small organization. So um, exhibiting leadership amongst uh, what was really a very small set of peers had a whole different veneer to it, I guess. That was uh, 
a situation in which I took a role that involved doing lots of things, taking a leadership role on lots of things that I'd never done before. I had to, for example, uh, you know, procure a health insurance plan for the entire company. I'd never done that before. That was sure. uh, completely different. That was a lot of sort of self-learning uh, on the fly, um, flying by the seat of your pants kind of work. But again, was able to rely on not only sort of my own skills about sort of reading and comprehending and um, putting into action what I've just read, but also um, having lots of conversations with my peers about what was going to be best and getting their perspectives and opinions, which is sort of a theme for me, right? Having those conversations um, and getting that input from a pretty wide variety of perspectives, I always find helpful. Yeah. So let me ask the question a different way then, because we were talking before we started about uh, leading technical people and and identifying technical people for leadership positions. Uh, and so often in so many organizations, we promote the, the best technical person, the smartest salesperson, the uh, best, the most competent technologist. And the skills are different. How How do you look at all of these smart PhDs that work for you to determine who your VPs are going to be? What do you yeah. look for? Yeah, they are different, aren't they? Because, um, yes, we have an organization of almost 6,000 scientists, essentially, and they are extremely skilled and well-educated and very smart people, as you've noted, but not all of them can manage and not all of them can lead. For us, it's a we tend to think of a set of behaviors or characteristics that enable people to move from a sort of a scientific track to a management track as being exhibiting great collaboration skills. And so this is the sort of team building, influencing kind of uh, behavior that I guess I've been referring to earlier. That's one piece. A second piece is being able to make difficult decisions quickly. And I, most of those decisions are about other people or about problem solving in a sort of a business problem or a contractual problem or problems that are not science-based. And so we look for ability to do those kinds of things. Yeah. So you, you mentioned two things that are really right on uh, collaboration skills, being able to really bring the team together to make things happen and decisiveness and decisiveness in an article that was, highlighted in Harvard Business Review about a year, year and a half ago, talked about successful and unsuccessful chief executive officers, CEOs. Mm -hmm. And what they found was uh, something like 75 or 65 to 75% of the CEOs that failed, failed because they couldn't make decisions fast enough. Yeah. Didn't have anything, anything else to do with just the speed of decision-making. Yeah, you know, I was referring to the science of science earlier before, and uh, the great majority of people that are here are, academically trained. And there is a rigor that's involved in scientific decision-making that allows you to spend some time to analyze and turn things over in your mind and uncover all of the possibilities and so forth. When you're running a business, you don't often don't have that luxury. And it's a lot of I don't want to make an overstatement here, but a lot of scientists aren't comfortable with that very quick decision making in with a high degree of uncertainty or with incomplete information. Incomplete information is the is the phrase that hits me. Yeah. Sort yeah. of not suitable for a management or leadership role. 
So uh, I want to ask one final question. The question I have for you is this. If you could write yourself a letter and send it back 25 years, what would you tell yourself from as far as leadership is concerned? What would you say? Buy stock in Apple. Um, (laughs) All right. That's financial. That's not leadership. But okay. I I, I guess if I were going to write a letter to myself, um, sort of summarizing what I've learned now, and it takes some time. Uh, You said at the beginning, Gary, that it takes a takes a very long time to develop leadership skills. It's not something you can do overnight. And so um, that's one of the things I would emphasize in my letter is um, being patient about developing those skills. And part of the patience aspect is being able to, I used this phrase before, but being a consumer of information and being able to take everything in from all perspectives or as as much as you can. That's one thing. Um, I also would emphasize that I talked a little bit before about collaboration, that ability to make and keep friends, (laughs) colleagues in the workplace is invaluable in my experience, because not only do you build up sort of a support network in the conduct of your daily work, but also all of those people that you are um, making and keeping as friends can be helpful in getting you to the next level. And this is this is sort of like not burning bridges, right? Because um, during your career, you make make several different stops, and you are always going to want to be able to traverse back over those bridges you built during your career. So, to me, that's an important thing. And um, the last thing I would say in that letter is: don't be afraid to take risks. Don't be afraid to make a jump. Don't be afraid to make big bets. Mm. Yeah, because we, we've heard many times it's not the things that we do that we regret. Usually it's the things that we don't do. Right, right. So that, that's that's a lot. Take your time. Be patient. Make friends. Uh, listen to others. Be collaborative um, and take risks. That's that's some good advice right there for any any of us. And I uh, when I coach younger leaders all the time, I say it takes five to ten years to become a mediocre leader. <laughs> So give yourself, give yourself a break and give yourself some time. Well, Craig, I very much appreciate your time and your thoughts today. It's a, it's a unique, a very unique role that you fill at a very unique and and very well-respected company here in the research triangle area. Uh, RTI international is uh, pretty well known here and a pretty amazing company for what, what you guys do to make a difference. And uh, Hey, thanks for making our hospital safer. Uh, You're welcome. And thanks very much for having me, Gary. I've enjoyed talking with you. Uh, I am Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders. And this is leading from the front. And we do this with compassionate accountability. Thank you. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.